Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin, the podcast is a proud member of the Osiris Media Group. Head over to OsirisPod.com to check out all the podcast offerings they have. That is OsirisPod.com. This episode of Across the Margin, the podcast presents an interview with Phil Freeman, a renowned music journalist specializing in jazz and metal. Love that combination, jazz and metal. He is the former managing editor of the world music magazine, Global Rhythm, the former editor-in-chief of the metal magazine, Metal Edge, the founder of MSN Entertainment's Headbang Daily Metal Blog, and currently writes a monthly jazz column called Ugly Beauty for Stereogum. It's excellent. Phil is also the co-creator of Burning Ambulance. It's a quarterly journal of arts and culture that encompasses a website, a podcast, also on the Osiris Network, and a record label. If you haven't checked out Burning Ambulance as of yet, do so. The amount of music discovery over there is absolutely jaw-dropping. Phil's latest book, Ugly Beauty, is the focus of this episode, and it highlights how vibrant and diverse today's jazz scene truly is. What does jazz mean 20 years into the 21st century? Has streaming culture rendered music literally meaningless thanks to the removal of all context beyond the playlist? Are there any traditions left to explore? Has the destruction of the apprenticeship model where young musicians learn from their elders changed music forever? Are any sounds off limits? How far out can one go and still call it jazz? Or should the term be retired? These questions and many more are answered in Ugly Beauty as Phil digs through his own experiences and conversations with present-day players. Jazz has never seemed as vital as it does right now. It truly has a genuine role to play in the 21st century culture, and that is all laid out in Phil's book, Ugly Beauty. It's excellent. So in this episode, Phil and I discuss what to expect when exploring the pages of Ugly Beauty while expounding on the unique jazz sounds coming out of the four cities focused on in the book, and that is Los Angeles, London, Chicago, and New York. We talk about the current surge in jazz appreciation abounding and the reasons for it. We dig in to what it meant when Kamasi Washington broke through, garnering masses of fans from outside of the jazz world. And we discuss how hip-hop has dramatically affected jazz in the 21st century. We also talk about a slew of artists who cannot be contained by traditional views of what is and isn't jazz. It's an excellent book. I mentioned it in our interview, but it can really be picked up and looked at as a manual of who to listen to these days in jazz and why. Go grab it, and I have no doubt you will enjoy this interview with Phil Freeman. podcast so um thanks phil i appreciate you uh i appreciate your time and also uh uh for all the music that um you unwittingly have introduced me and so many others throughout the year uh through all your work i i owe you for many musical introductions but uh thank you for your time appreciate it yeah absolutely so um 
I know a, a great deal about your work and your writing um, as I followed you through the years, but I don't know much about you. So right before we dive into the book, I want to ask just this quick question. Um, I'm curious, when was it initially that you took an interest in jazz? When did, uh, when did you catch the bug on that? When I was about 15. Um, I, and that, so that would have been about 1987. And the weird thing about it was that I, I came to jazz through Rolling Stone magazine strangely enough because like they did their 20th anniversary thing right like that year you know I I had started reading them a couple of years before that and they 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 did this 20th anniversary celebration of themselves and one of the things that they did was they put together like the greatest albums of our for you know that came out while Rolling Stone existed you know was how that was how it was formatted and one of the records in there was Bitches Brew, the Miles Davis record. And so I said, okay, I want, I want to know about this. So I bought that. And I didn't like it at all. It was, uh, I remember it was like a thick two-cassette set because I had like a Walkman. You know, I was a 14, 15-year-old kid. I had a Walkman. I listened to cassettes. So I bought this brick of two cassettes, and I swear I never even got to the second tape. Like, I tried listening to the first side, you know, which was one long piece. Mm-hmm. And I was like, nah, this is this is not happening for me at all. But somehow or other, from that, I then, I, I listened to Kind of Blue. And that really worked for me. That album I really, really connected with instantly. I was like, this is amazing. I love this music, you know. And... And what's funny about it is that back in the 80s, I did not I didn't learn this until years and years later, but back in the 80s, Kind of Blue was actually released at the wrong speed. Oh, wow. It was like it was like a half step off, so it was always playing just a little bit pitched too high, you know, and people didn't figure this out for like decades. They were like, oh, wow, throughout the entire CD era, we were, you know, we were selling this this incorrectly mastered version of this classic album, you know, and then like in the 2000s sometime they fixed it. But anyway, that was uh, that was sort of my uh, my entry point. And then, you know, later I started taking stuff out from the public library and buying CDs and buying tapes and, you know on and on yeah it begs me uh it begs the question though, how do you feel about bitches brew uh these days these days did it ever did it ever get you it is still not in my top mm-hmm. 10 miles records it's not Fascinating. there are times when i will when i'll listen to like the first disc of it you know and those two long pieces like there are brilliant parts you know pharaoh's dance Mm. the first track on the album now does work much better for me than it did back then i'm but i'm always more like fascinated to listen to it's not like i'm listening to it as a piece of music sort of it's like i'm listening to it and picking it apart in a way in my head while it's playing like i'm thinking okay there's an edit there there's a you know there's like i can hear where they spliced this part together you know okay they repeated a section 
it becomes because I, I wrote a whole book about electric miles and re that required me to really dig deep into the studio methodology that they used to make a lot of those records. And so now I can't really hear it as a singular work of art anymore. I can only listen to it and hear the process. Yeah. It's become academic in a way. That's it. That's very interesting. Um, let's talk Ag ugly beauty. It's, it's what a great book. And, you know what? It, what I just can't help but looking at it as um, as a as a resource. I mean, it, it's kind of it's to me. It's kind of like this manual, which um, you can you know find all these current jazz artists to listen to right now, and and the reasons why you should listen to. And it just it's really remarkable in that way. But just generally speaking, before we kind of sharpen our focus and talk about some specifics in the book, what can readers expect when they dive into uh, the pages of Ugly Beauty? Well, I say in the introduction that, you know, be, and it's funny be, that you mentioned it as a resource because I say in the introduction that it's not an encyclopedia, that I would prefer people to think of it as a collection of postcards because it's it's profiles of jazz musicians, most of whom I encountered over the past 10 years or so. And a lot of the encounters are first person. You know, I spend a lot of time in the book describing shows that I went to personally, or, you know, being in the recording studio with a musician, or interviewing someone at a, you know, backstage at a club or something. So it's very much my journey through jazz in the past decade or you know 20 years as much you know so it's it's all about the it's all about the musicians but i am definitely like a character in the story to a degree that surprised me when i was done mm. Mm. that's interesting um i love that's a great description too the uh, uh, a collection of postcards on these musicians and yes you are definitely involved in, in a major way that is I mean I was wondering you know kind of how long this process was and I think you just nailed it there with kind of a a decade a decade of life in jazz and you know because it was you know there's so many interviews in it and there's so many of your first-hand experiences which is really cool kind of takes you on a little journey with you through your jazz world but the book kind of focuses um on four key zones um Four key cities. Uh, we're talking London, Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, and I was kind of curious why that sharpened focus on those cities, and and maybe um, that leads us to uh, uh, you know you telling us a little bit about some of the unique characteristics of um, you know jazz in the 21st century in those four cities. Well, I mean, New York is New York. You know, it's. Yep. For good or ill, it's the center of the jazz universe. You know, people come here to make it, and the scene here is highly competitive, and there's a million things going on at all times. And so that, you know, I could have written a book just about New York players, you know, but that would have been a very, a very impoverished book, I think. You know, because that's what's so interesting to me is that there is all this stuff going on elsewhere. And in the last half dozen years, I would say, the L.A. scene has really sprung up. You know, I mean, it's it's all, 
you can lay the entire thing at the feet of Kamasi Washington, you know, because he broke out thanks to his work on the Kendrick Lamar record to Pimp a Butterfly. He broke out and got a whole bunch of people to listen to and buy a jazz record, you know, and not just a jazz record, but like a three LP, you know, a three CD and I think five LP set. You know, it's it's a monster thing, you know, and he kind of captured the zeitgeist in a lot of, in a very significant way. And so people began paying attention to West Coast jazz in a way that they had not in a long, long time. And it's funny because I've interviewed a lot of players from that scene, you know, and they were, and some of them will tell you straight out that when the Kamasi record hit in 2015 there was this feeling of like, man, we've been here, you know, we've been here since like 2004. And the fact that you're just picking this up now is, you know, welcome. You're welcome to the party we've been having for a decade, you know? So this has been going on. Yeah. (laughs) So that interested me, you know, and I wanted to learn more and more about those dudes, especially since it, it really does seem to revolve around one, community of players who have all known each other since high school you know so there's Mm -hmm. that aspect of it is fascinating to me and then chicago is interesting because it's always there are really strong contrasts between new york and chicago in terms of the type of artists they produce um chicago is a much more community oriented scene than New York in the sense that people really do work together to to succeed collectively. I mean, the the most significant artistic legacy of Chicago jazz, I think, is the AACM, the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians. And that was formed in 1965 by Muhal Richard Abrams and Roscoe Mitchell and some other folks who would go on to form like the Art Ensemble of Chicago and, you know, various other groups. And they all really did work together. They appeared on each other's records. They premiered each other's compositions in concert. They helped each other get record deals. They did everything that they could to make sure that, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And something like that would never happen in New York. It's just not the way the city is built. And it goes even beyond that. I mean, for example, one of the earliest members of the AACM was Fred Anderson, the saxophonist who opened a bar in, I think, the 80s called the Velvet Lounge and kept that bar open basically until his death, which was in the mid-2000s. And he provided a stage for young jazz artists to come and play like you you know you could get booked at the velvet lounge and people would come and and check it out you know they not only was uh, the fact that the booking policy was pretty open and the fact that he provided such a supportive environment meant that there was like a tacit endorsement there you know it was fred anderson helping bring the next generation forward and that kind of thing, again, is just something that, you know, Chicago does that New York doesn't do. New York is is a shark tank, 
everyone is out for themselves you know i mean people will form bands and things like that you know and they and musicians like each other and have the same bond that musicians have in other in other places but it's mm-hmm. hyper competitive in a different sort of way you know and then the London scene had to be documented because it's such a, you know, it's it's another thing like L.A. It kind of emerged out of nowhere. People didn't really realize that this sort of thing was going on until all of a sudden it was inescapable. And a lot of the music is really, really good, you know, in a way that, in a way that's different from what we traditionally think of in terms of British jazz. So... You know, it was much more influenced by dance music and Caribbean music and all sorts of things like that. So, you know, so those were kind of the keys. And then there's one there's one section in the book also, though, which is about South African players, which is very key because the South African scene is now rising up as well uh, and just presenting a tremendous amount of talent. So they're they're definitely they're they're pitching, you know, really hard right now. And it's I think that in the next couple of years for the next couple of years, uh South Africa is gonna be producing some incredible talent. That's wild, that's wild. So there seems to be um a surge in jazz appreciation occurring. I mean, you know, you alluded to some of it with Kamasi and you know what's happening in London and what you just mentioned there. And I could certainly feel it in New York. And, you know, you see it when, you know, the coverage in Pitchfork and Stereo Gum, you know, throughout the last decade is, you know, they're covering it more and just and beyond. And I was curious if you could speak to what you would say is driving this new surge of appreciation of jazz music these days. I, uh, it's hard to say. I mean, it's, it's great. I love it. You know, I love the fact that yeah. you could go to a jazz club now and see, you know, young people. Is It's fantastic that a young audience is discovering the music because I am myself no longer young. You know, I am, I am 50, but uh, the, you know, I'm still young for a jazz club in, in a certain yep. way. <laughs> Except that, um, except at that first Kamasi show you were at. Yeah, yeah, no, that was such a fascinating experience. In in 2015, I went to see him at the Blue mm-hmm. Note in New York, and there were yep. young people there who were clearly like on dates, and there were mm-hmm. you know they were in groups and trying to kind of figure out how one was supposed to behave at a jazz Act. show, and it was yeah. it was really fascinating to me because I remember that nervousness. Like I I started mm-hmm. going to see jazz live jazz in like the mid to late 90s you know 90 96 Mm -hmm. 97 probably and i remember you know sitting there going okay am i dressed well enough do i have enough money for this club Mm -hmm. you know like they're going to charge me for drinks but i don't drink you know like what's (laughs) how does this all work should i eat so it is you have to become socialized to it in a certain way and i'm glad that it's uh you know that that's happening yeah you um you offered actually a, a very simple answer to my question there about the surge in jazz music um appreciation i mean you stated pretty plainly i mean the answer is the music 
I mean, there's just the music is just outstanding. That's abounding out there, which is which is true. I do want to mention, um, you know, kind of touch on Kamasi uh, real quick a little bit more. I mean, it was a huge moment for jazz, um, you know, in the 21st century when he did break through and. Um, you know, they, he just garnered so much attention for fans outside the confines of the jazz community. And I was just wondering, kind of, what would you say it was about Kamasi and his sound that affected so many? And then also kind of to piggyback on that, what um, what did it mean for jazz when he broke through in that way? Kind of a two-part question there. Yeah, um, I think the first part is the the mu- the appeal of the music is pretty straightforward. I mean, he his tunes have strong melodies. They have mm-hmm. really like big sort of cinematic arrangements. He's got like strings and choirs and you know stuff like that. So it's like big sweeping epic kind of music which is very appealing to a lot of people and you know probably much more appealing than if he was if he had come out with just like a quartet you know piano bass drums it probably would not have been nearly as interesting to people and um so i mean there's that and also there's the fact that you know unlike a lot of jazz players he actually puts on a show i mean he comes out in robes you know he wear he dresses really you know, in a really exciting way on stage. He's got the big afro. He's got, you know, a singer. He's got, you know, his band has a strong visual presentation. He's got two drummers live, you know, and it's really loud and 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 aggressive and, you know, involving. And he is a very charismatic dude. I mean, he tells jokes. He talks to the audience. You know, he's clearly there enjoying himself inviting you to enjoy yourself he's a he's a performer you know in in a way that a lot of jazz musicians are not because they are the product of music schools where you know the point is how well can you play your instrument how complex is your composition you know are you are you challenging the listener you know that's that's the word that that if that if I could remove one word from jazz discourse permanently, I think it would be the Challenge. word challenging because yeah. Yeah. people don't want to be challenged all the time. They don't want to be challenged most of the time. You know, people like to like if you if you start a piece of music in a really palatable hooky catchy kind of way but by the end of it you've taken them on like a really complex harmonic journey people will dig it and they'll follow you on that journey but if you start out you know throwing things you know throwing darts at people you know they're not gonna follow you they're they're not gonna you know want to sit through that and the only people that want to sit through that are other musicians and jazz critics, you know? And I feel like Kamasi connects with an audience because he wants to connect with an audience. And that audience is not made up of critics and jazz musicians. That audience is made up of anybody who comes in the door. And that's a value that a lot of musicians could stand to emulate. 
Yeah, I think it's also so, worth noting the um, – yeah, go on. So, I mean, if he, you know, if he has signaled a change, it may be in that more musicians are now willing to meet the audience halfway in that sense. Love that. But I think it's uh, I think more it's people should. But but not enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, follow 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 Kamasi's lead on that. It's definitely worth noting his uh you know, his crew as well. And it's laid out really well. I'm speaking of Thundercat, Porter, uh, Martin, etc. Um, you know, it's it's great that interview with Thundercat where you learn more about how they came up together and, and just their background. That was really, really fascinating um section of the book. One thing that really um, you know, is highlighted in the book is hip hop's influence on the jazz artist in this era. I mean, they grew up where hip hop was the prominent, many of them grew up where hip hop was the prominent music, and but especially in the black community. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how hip hop has, um, you know, when did this uh, influence begin and and how hip hop has affected modern jazz? Because it's, it's, it's pretty influential at this point right now. It is, it is. And I mean, there's a simple chronological reason for that, basically. Because, I mean, if you think about it, okay, hip-hop started in the mid-70s, right? And really kind of broke out around, let's say, 81, 82, okay? So, if if you were born after 1982, so if you're under 40, okay, you have never known a world without hip-hop in it. Now, I'm old enough that I can remember a time before hip-hop. I can remember when rap music was a new thing, you know, but a lot of these players, like a lot of these, you know, trumpet players that I deal with specifically in the fourth section of the book, they are 35, you know, or some of them are like 30. And it's like that hip-hop is all they've ever known. It's the music they grew up listening to, you know. And it's so it's completely natural that they would filter jazz through hip-hop rather than vice versa, you know. Because there are older generations of jazz musicians who were already playing jazz went you know for years when hip-hop came along and so they be they sort of if they engaged with it at all they thought about it as something that they needed to grapple with you know and find a way and find a way to incorporate into hip-hop or into jazz whereas you know somebody that's born listening to hip-hop is going to say okay this is cool you know and I want to do jazz, so how can I make jazz relevant to what I'm already interested in? And so it, uh, you know, it completely changes things. And it, and it changes, you know, it changes everything. It changes your approach to rhythm. It changes how you hear, you know, it changes how you hear time, you know, and it changes... It changes uh, the way you you would approach your instrument, I imagine, because, you know, you're going to, if you're thinking of, you know, melodic and musical cadences in, from a hip hop sort of point of view, then it's going to change how you phrase things on your horn. Yeah. 
I'd love to uh, speak to that for a second. You actually mentioned the trumpet section of your book, which I absolutely love. Um, you know, we talk about Ambrose, Keon, the, uh, uh, Theo, Christian, just this, that group in there. But I mean, you, um, uh, to piggyback on what you were just saying, it, there's this paragraph. I'm actually going to read it real quick. It says, um, and it's talking about trumpeters approaching kind of how they play like an MC. And it goes, in some ways, a trumpeter is a lot like an MC. The rapper must hold the crowd's attention with nothing but a microphone and his own wit and charisma. A trumpeter can lead a band, obviously, but his instrument is small and relatively underpowered compared to a tenor saxophone. His saxophone is roar and rumble. Trumpeters duck and dart, stick and move. So it's it's like you're saying, it's like kind of how they approach the beat in a different way with that trumpet. And I thought that connection you made between, you know, these trumpeters and hip hop, it just, and it's just incredible. It's a really cool section of the book. So bravo on that. Um, an artist I was really, I'm, I've really taken to recently, you know, he plays a lot in New York is VJ Iyer and so special. And um, it was unique the way you were discussing him and, you know, his relationship to jazz. Um, you were even kind of posing the question, is he a jazz musician? And I was wondering if you could tell us how he, you know, uh, why you would, you know, kind of have that question about, you know, an artist such as him and, you know, where he fits into today's diverse collective of 21st century jazz artists. Yeah, he's a really fascinating dude because... Sure is. He, because he, ha he asks these questions of himself, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, he he engages very deeply in his own interviews with the idea of what is, you know, what is jazz? What is a jazz musician? You know, am I do, you know, like, am I doing this? Am I doing something else? You know, he, he thinks about it a lot, you know, and he says like, I come out of, you know, the lineage of jazz piano and he'll rattle off, you know, a string of players like legendary players that he admires and has, you know, been studying for decades, you know, but at the same time as a composer, his interests are extremely wide ranging and move from electronic music to string quartets, you know, to all sorts of other types of pieces. And so there is, you know, at a certain point, jazz becomes just part of what someone does, you know, and, and that's, that's true of a lot of people. I mean, that's true of, for example, Roscoe Mitchell from the Art Ensemble of Chicago, who composes all sorts of things you know he composes pieces that are like duos for saxophone and percussion or you know like entire like entirely written out pieces you know and then does all these you know he does he does whatever he wants you know he he stretches himself in any direction that interests him at the time and Iyer has actually been part of some of his groups you know and so there's that uh there's that methodological and philosophical kind of connection down the generations. You know, I mean, Iyer has also worked extensively with uh, Wadada Leo Smith, the trumpet player, who is part of the AACM. You know, so there's definitely that mindset where there's a certain kind of conceptualism 
at work, like you're examining the rules that say you can or cannot do X, Y, and Z. And if you, if somebody says you can't do that, then the question is, well, why not? You know. And so, I mean, there are so many artists that have a problem with the term jazz, and I understand why, because you know, in certain in certain ways, it has negative connotations. You know, and particularly if you came up in the '60s and '70s, you know, when there when racism was much more overt and jazz was really sort of sneered at as lower class music, then I understand why you'd be why you'd be upset about it. You know, but to my mind, in recent decades, that has kind of flipped on its head mm-hmm. in the sense that jazz is no longer seen as vulgar and is in fact kind of in many ways seen as elitist art music which is why the broader public doesn't really connect with it i think because it's often presented as something that's good for you you know it's it's a higher form it's not classical music but it's certainly not pop it's like it's in that blurry zone in between and so to me when when artists reject the term jazz on the grounds that it's you know that it's uh, a slur effectively i feel like that's an out of date paradigm that in fact you should reject it if you're going to reject it you should reject it because it pigeonholes your music as not vernacular music and not popular music you know like jazz has a real museum exhibit problem <laughs> it does. sometimes yeah yeah i mean you spoke to it earlier just using you know the shaking the word challenging that's it, you you really break it down in such a great way um throughout the book in multiple sections discussing it as a super word um and you know as you mentioned there it does have good and bad and good you know you describe it as one of the best marketing phrases you know in certain ways and then also bad limiting um patronizing racist in certain ways so that's that's a really cool discussion that's happening throughout the book uh, as well the the um the last section of your book's really interesting to me it talks about artists that um like kind of can't be contained by traditional notions of what is and isn't jazz and I did want to ask, I wanted to mention this grouping because they a lot of them really fascinate me, but um, how are these artists, and that's including of um, Jamie Branch, um, Brandon Lewis, uh, uh, Moore Mother, you know, uh, that, that grouping that you discuss, um, how are they approaching uh, their craft and sound in, 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 the, in a new way that's kind of bringing new elements to, uh, to jazz music that we haven't seen before? Well, it's funny because when I was writing the book, I had kind of other names for each section than what wound up being in the final book. And the fifth section, I thought about it when I was writing it. I thought about that fifth and final section as the punks, (laughs) you know, because they they are artists that. In some ways, they're artists that come out of punk and come out of underground rock, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, Moore Mother was in a punk band, and, you know, Jamie Branch is 
affiliated with like knows people on the Chicago alternative rock scene and the underground, you know, music scene there. And Luke Stewart, same thing from, you know, from Washington, D.C. They're all kind of, you know, and Matana Roberts as well comes out of a kind of DIY art scene. So there is that kind of street level thing to what they do, and it manifests in their work in the way they take whatever they need from wherever it comes from. You know, and there's no preciousness about what they do. They just say, okay, on this record, it's going to be just trumpet and synth, you know, or Luke Stewart has, Luke Stewart has a series, uh, two albums out, uh, works for upright bass and feedback, you know, and that's the title of the, the thing. And, and it's about sculpting sound as much as it is about being a virtuoso bass player, you know, and that kind of thing is very interesting to me because not only because the music is exciting but also because of the the theory behind it or the idea behind it which is to make music that is engaged with the world you know it, it contains the sound of life around it I mean, it's you can you can go into a recording studio and make an absolutely pristine sounding record for ECM or you know for Sony or for any like major label. But these artists don't do that. What they do instead is they allow the real world to bleed into what they're doing. You know, like for example, Jamie Branch's albums are a mixture of studio and live, you know, and it's because if the most exciting performance was the one that you taped at the club, then you use that version and the crowd, you know, and you hear the sound of the crowd reacting to it, you know? Mm. So... Love it. Yeah, it's... it's, uh, The DIY thing is do whatever works to get (laughs) the effect that you want to get. And... I feel like that's, you know, that's a very productive approach and it's a very important future path. Yeah. Yeah, there's something real freeing about it, too. You describe it as a little darker and angrier, a little more punk, what they're all doing. It's really, really exciting. I'm I'm going to go see Jamie here in a couple of weeks um, at uh, Baby's All Right for the Flyer Die Tour, and I can't wait. I have a two quick questions I want to ask you as we kind of wind down here, um, kind of personal reasons, but what, um, what is, what are your, what's your, uh, favorite or, you know, a jazz club in New York that really, really would kind of your go-to or maybe your favorite place. Um, and then I also want to ask, uh, is there like a can't miss act right now in New York or someone who's like really blown your mind recently that you can point us to, um, I just thought while I have you, I'd pick your, pick your brain on both of those. Uh, okay, well, my favorite jazz club for the past few years actually closed uh-huh. during the pandemic, which was the, uh, the Jazz Standard was great because yeah. they were a regular yeah. type of jazz club, served food, had nice tables, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But they had really exciting, they booked really exciting acts. They were, you know, they were yep. less touristy than like the Blue Note or, you know, or mm-hmm. Birdland, but not quite as 
hardcore as the village vanguard you know they were like in a in a good yeah. middle ground so i loved that place but beyond that um i would say the jazz gallery is doing a lot mm -hmm. of really really interesting intelligent but still compelling music you know they put on really they put on people who are really looking forward you know and engaging with new ideas on a regular basis so and they i believe they they're some kind of non-profit as well so i mean it's you know it's important to kind of support win-win underground art that's not entirely capitalist driven you know absolutely absolutely <laughs> and uh if i was to pick an artist who i think is really exciting right now that any that everybody should be paying attention to i think it's got to be james brandon lewis the saxophonist he mm -hmm. is doing he's another one who's just doing new things constantly um reshaping his groups like i believe right now he's got a group with a cello and a drummer um you know a new trio and he's got some duo projects out with uh with chad taylor the drummer and he's he's constantly like forming new bands trying new ideas making a record moving on having another idea he's in constant motion and i and 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 plus when he himself plays he's just a terrific saxophonist really really strong melodic voice on the horn and a great you know he just sounds great so yeah noted noted good heads up um i just want to commend your writing i mean just going through it there's so just you know sometimes you think there's only certain so many words you can use to describe music and time and time again just the the way you're describing some of these sounds. There was a point I was I was kind of reading through some things today where you were talking about um it was I one of Iyer's show and Smith Smith and Frizzell ended up playing together and you're like each note was like oh, ice cold daggers fired straight through every audience member's heart and it just it was just hitting me. But um more than that though I thought you know you talked about jazz being challenging and, and just kind of how people view it. I think this book um, and just the way you approached it all kind of you know. Uh, it, it seems to aim to make things a little more accessible in a way. And there was one time you talked about jazz and you wrote, from my point of view, jazz is not a box or an envelope. It's an umbrella or a house. All who wish to sh uh, stand under it or live within it are welcome. So, you know, I could see, you know, a lot of people who talk about jazz could be viewed as, you know, uh, it, it, you know, not as welcoming. And, and it, you see everything you're doing with uh, shining the light on all this music out there, all this wonderful jazz music. It feels so inviting. And it's just, it's really, really, really special. And it's a really special book. So um, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about it. And I plan to use it as a resource for a while to uh, chase down some of these acts and this music. It's really great. So thank you. Thank you, man. Yeah, I mean, that's that's something that I've always been been trying to do is to get across... You know, if there was one thing that I could get across to anybody listening to this, it's that jazz is music that normal people can listen to for entertainment. It's not something you need a master's degree in to understand. It's music. Listen to it, and if you like it, great. You know? I mean... It's funny because sometimes I get into, you know, people say, oh, how would you, you know, get people to listen to jazz? And I would, and my thinking is always, well, not like that. Not by saying, oh, you should, <laughs> you should listen to jazz, you know. Instead, what I try and do is find out what kind of music someone already likes 
and present them with a jazz equivalent to that. You know, like if somebody says, oh, I really like Coldplay, you know, then it's like, okay, then you should listen to Go Go Penguin, you know. Or if they're like, oh, I'm a big fan of Lana Del Rey, then it's like, okay, have you heard Diana Krall, you know, stuff like that. Like just make those connections and say, this is, you know, this is what's, it's just music, you know, give it a try. Maybe you'll like it, maybe you won't, but it's not, you know, no one will think poorly of you if you, you know, this won't be on the test. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. And you're right. There are so many inroads and, you know, you find that time and time again when you're, you know, drawing comparisons to other musicians throughout the book. And there's just, you know, it's you're right. It's it can be for everyone. And it's and it's exciting time for jazz. And that's what ugly uh, beauty really, really shows. So, Phil, thank you again. I really appreciate the time. I appreciate the book. So thank you. Absolutely, man. Thanks. Thanks a lot.
This podcast is In The Loop, the legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com.